Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. He calls himself a scholar of historical trauma. In his book, The Black Butterfly, Dr. Lawrence Brown lays bare the history of harmful politics in Baltimore and takes a look at what he thinks should be done to make Black neighborhoods matter. Dr. Lawrence Brown, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. First of all, um, you know, there are people that are outside of Baltimore, um, you know, can be anywhere that listen to this podcast. So while the term is used in Baltimore all the time, tell me what is the Black Butterfly? Well, the Black Butterfly is really a demographic descriptor that really talks about where African-Americans are mostly concentrated in the city, in, in West Baltimore and in East Baltimore, spread out in the pattern of the wings of a butterfly. Um, and it's something that I identified back in 2015, uh, looking at a racial dot map of Baltimore, which was generated by Dustin Cable, who was at the University of Virginia at the time. And just looking at it, and I you know, drew a boundary around Baltimore because it wasn't pronounced on his map. And as soon as I drew Baltimore's boundary, I was like, whoa, that looks like the pattern of a butterfly. So those dots that represent African-Americans. So I said, well, I'm going to call it the black butterfly. And it's also more than just a description of where black people live in the city. It's also a description of where capital accumulates or rather where capital does not accumulate. So the companion uh, racial geography in Baltimore is the white L, which runs down the center of the city going from the Northern part coming into town from Towson, going down St. Paul or Charles Street, and you just take that all the way down to downtown and then hit Alice Anna and take that east uh, from the harbor all the way to the county or Eastern Avenue, and that's where you would be in and around the White L. And so the White L is where capital accumulates. The White L is where capital can be readily obtained. The black butterflies where capital is denied. And so it's also a socioeconomic descriptor, but a descriptor not about the economic condition of the people, but about the economic allocation from banks and from public entities like the city government. Since you kind of coined that term, you know, every time I feel like anyone really sees a map, if, if it's a map of transit equity, if it's a map of poverty, if it's a map of violence, it's almost always looks like the same map. Does that strike you in some way when you see it? Just because now your visual of a butterfly is so fresh in everybody's heads and then every map we see, it just looks the same. Yeah, it's actually kind of disturbing <laughs> that is. You know, you can see the black butterfly pattern show up so often. It shouldn't be, you know, that you find it show up with, you know, all the different variables that you just mentioned, like transit with real estate, with housing variables, you know, homicides, fresh fruit access, all these so many variables map too neatly sometimes <laughs> on top of that. But I should say that sometimes there are other maps I've seen that, You'll just see, if it's a negative indicator, 
you may just see more so Central West and Central East Baltimore. And now when I see that pattern, uh, it's not fully, you don't see the full spread of the butterfly. It's just like the, the inner part of the wings. It reminds me of the residential security map because Central West Baltimore and Central East Baltimore, that's where African-Americans lived in the 30s when the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was later combined with the Federal Housing Administration of the federal government, that's when those communities were redlined. And so you see those Central East and Central West indicators are communities on the map with colored red. And I've seen that pattern also be illuminated in some different maps. So it's interesting, you know, I, sometimes I see the black butterfly, but other times I see echoes of the residential security map. Mm-hmm. And I want to get into that. Um, your book, The Black Butterfly, The Harmful Politics of Race and Space in America is... It was not something you just sat down and wrote one day. It <laughs> incredibly well-researched. The I think a quarter of the book is the appendix at the end showing where all your information came from. Um, and it really traces this history of practices that led us to where we are today, specifically in the city of Baltimore, but Baltimore is really a microcosm for a lot of cities across the world. If we can do, I know it's so hard because there's so much to it, but Can you talk a little bit about the history of redlining in Baltimore and explain what redlining is, honestly, for people who might not know or or be familiar with that term? Sure. Well, the history of it, you know, I should mention that before redlining, which is really the deprivation, the denial of capital, before that, you had Baltimore City pioneering residential racial zoning, December 19th. 1910, Baltimore Mayor John Barry Mahool signs the first residential racial zoning ordinance in American history in Baltimore City, and it required, there were actually four ordinances because they kept getting struck down in court, but over time, the ordinances would require blocks that were over 50% black to remain 50% black once people moved. If people moved in to 51% black block, then only black people could move into it. And the converse was true. If the block was 50% or more white, then only white people could move into it, which tells us that actually uh, the housing pattern was not as segregated as it is now. This bill actually enforced, and those ordinances helped to intensify racial segregation. And that's just where people live, but churches, recreation centers. So it helps segregate and cleave to create this sort of division that really separated uh, the worlds of black and white Baltimoreans. Then in the 19-teens, you had the Roland Park Company, which was a developer at the time located in just north of the city, which was smaller at the time. And that developer created community-wide restrictive, racially restrictive covenants in Roland Park, which developed Roland Park, Guilford, Homeland, and then later the Northwood community. Then this competitor in West Baltimore, the Forest Park Company, they utilized the same tool trying to keep up with their competitor in terms of who could be the most racist and exclusionary. So they created that. So Baltimore was already pioneering these tools and tactics, these policies and practices. When the federal government gets involved, again, through the Homeowners Loan Corporation, and they draft these residential security maps, 
Residential security from what? <laughs> Residential security from who? And so these maps are designed to protect white property owners, homeowners from the incursion or as the newspaper like the Baltimore Sun would say, the Negro invasion, the invasion of home buyers moving into white blocks. And so these maps were actually had four colors on them, red, blue, yellow and green. So I think it's actually something of a misconception when we focus solely on red lining, because there were four different linings, yellow lining, red lining, blue lining, and green lining. And the yellow and red lining, those were capital geographies of denial. It was very hard to obtain capital, especially later after those maps were drawn. But the blue and green communities, they had advantage. They had structural advantage. Banks loved to see people who lived in blue and green communities. So this was both happening at the same time. The hyper accumulation of capital in blue and green communities and the hyper deprivation of capital in yellow and red communities. How do policies like that, that happened, you know, a hundred years ago impact us today? Because it feels like as much as we try and change some of those policies, we still look at the map and we still have the same issues. It seems like a mountain to climb to try and turn it around. Right. It is a mountain. And it's a mountain because the racist policies and practices kept coming. If it had stopped then, (laughs) you know, then the mountain wouldn't be so big. But we had, you know, at that point in time in the 1930s, African-Americans were the minority population in the city. But as black people moved into Baltimore, white Baltimoreans began to leave the city in large numbers. And there was a tool or a practice called blockbusting where real estate speculators, they would scare, oftentimes you scare tactics to scare white people out of their homes. And often that scare tactics was simply to say that black people were moving in. And so white people will sell their home at low for a low price. And then these blockbusters, these real estate speculators, they would sell the home to African-Americans, middle-class families who often were at the time, concentrated in this very small area in Central West and Central East Baltimore, they would sell them the home at a premium, sometimes 80%, 90% higher than the price that they bought it from, from the white homeowner. So they were making a killing. They were making huge profit. As African-Americans began to move more and more to the city, the, the wings of the butterfly began to expand. So the purchase of property... Black people are losing wealth. And then once these neighborhoods flip from white to black, you begin to see a lot of services, a lot of businesses, a lot of bank lending, you know, not take place at the rate where the businesses services might leave, but the banks would begin to not lend in those new communities. So this meant redlining was spreading in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s until Baltimore became a majority black city. But we also see today, if you look at data from the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, redlining is still happening. You know, they have an analysis between 2011 and 2013 showing home loans and small business lending are both today concentrated or in that time frame, that two year period, they're both concentrated in the white L. So the redlining of black neighborhoods and the green lining of white neighborhoods 
these both are still going on. That's the real issue. And that's on the private side. But if you look, Stephanie Smith, who's also a delegate in the Maryland General Assembly, but she works with their budget office. She conducted analysis of the city's public capital budget. And she found in her study that communities that were 75% or more white received almost twice as much from that budget, from the public budget, as communities that were 75% or more people of color. So not only do we have private bank redlining, even our own city government has a inequitable distribution of public dollars towards the white L and not as much for the black butterfly. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, the leader in digital equity in Maryland. Connect to Wi-Fi and computer terminals at all 22 locations. Check out hotspots and tablets to take home. Get a Pratt e-card and access thousands of free e-books. Details at prattlibrary.org. So what does it take, especially on the public side? I think that just the study itself is shocking. So what does it take from our lawmakers to actually turn that around? Well, it takes real intentionality. Today is very, very popular to have all kinds of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, DEI. You know, it's almost becoming a big industry. <laughs> but what I think is, you know, it's a, equity is becoming a term that people use and they don't really mean it. Because when I talk about equity in my book, I'm saying that equity is what we do, not what we say. Equity is what we do to correct the damage that was inflicted intentionally on black neighborhoods for over one century in this city. And so in order for public officials to address this, they're going to have to take intentional, powerful action, not words, action. And the actions have to be as strong as the policies were that put this all into place. And there's a New York Times article, they're covering what happens in Baltimore in 1910 when that racial zoning act is put in place. And the New York Times writer in one paragraph says that this is a radical, this is a radical ordinance that's being instituted in Baltimore. You know, we already have segregation in transportation and education, But that's kind of temporary. People move through those spaces or they go home. But now this is making segregation much more permanent in where people live. This is where they're people's homes. And so in this one paragraph, this writer uses the word radical four times, four times. Like this is this is radical and far reaching. This is I know we have racism, but this takes it to another level. And so. My thing is what we have to do now has to be just as radical now as it was then. If it was radical putting it into place, then our solutions have to be radical to undo the damage. And I think that's the people are afraid. Our politicians are afraid of radical action, even though radical action is what was done to put urban apartheid into place. And I think that is the thing that has to change. 
And you talk about equity. And I think like a year or two ago, people started using like equity and equality in the same way. Mm -hmm. I think there's been a movement away from that. But I want to give you the opportunity to tell me what is the difference between equity and equality because they are very different. (laughs) Sure. Well, to me, equality is more about outcome. You know, we want people to have the same opportunity. We want people to have the same type of economic outcomes, you know, one group of people shouldn't be at 80,000 annual median household income and then another group of people be at 40,000, which is actually pretty much an accurate description of where white and black Baltimoreans are in terms of annual median household income. The white annual median household income in Baltimore is around 80,000. The black annual median household income is around 40,000. So it's about a two to one difference. So we want equality. We don't want to be half of what white people are making. That would be equality to make sure that we have the same economic indicators as everybody else. But equity, equity is the action that you would have to take. Action, action, action. The action that we would have to take to get to equality. And I think that's the way we have to look at it. Again, equity, as I say in my book, is about correcting restoring, healing the damage that was intentionally inflicted, which means you actually have to know about the damage, first of all. So equity for me is a real process. Equity is not a lens. It's not a perspective. It's not having a nice conference. Equity is a reckoning. It's changing policies. It's understanding which policies, practices, systems, and budgets were put into place to create the damage and then creating this holistic plan to heal and undo the damage that was done. So for me, equity is very, very robust, very serious. And it's not just something that it's not like a set of goggles or a set of glasses that you put on and put off. (laughs) Yes. There are a lot of buzzwords that surround the word equity. That is for sure. Um, In your book, you really discuss the importance of making black neighborhoods matter And you use this great analogy of a garden that I think is really descriptive. Explain to me what you mean by making Black neighborhoods matter. Well, you know, we have been in the middle of this sort of protest organizing moment the past six or seven years after the murder of Trayvon Martin down in Florida by George Zimmerman. And I think the, for me, The phrase that really emerged to encapsulate this was Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter became the rallying cry for the social movement, for racial justice that we have seen in the past decade. And so, you know, in my work, I begin to think a lot about how space or how race is spatialized and perhaps conversely, how race is spatialized or how space is racialized. And so the You know, it happens both ways, like race is tied up with space. The geographic hierarchies that we create help determine who has opportunity and who does not. So for me, I argue that we can't make black lives matter if we don't make black neighborhoods matter. They should be a companion rallying cry because for every Rakaia Boyd, for, for every Sandra Bland, for every Freddie Gray, for every person that's killed by the police, there are tens and thousands of Black people living in neighborhoods that are redlined, subprime, marginalized, and demonized. 
And black life shouldn't just matter when the police is killing black folk. Black life should matter in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our communities. And because America is so racially segregated still, this results in early death, premature death, and lower quality of life for tens and thousands and even millions of black people in America. So black lives won't fully matter until black neighborhoods fully matter because racial segregation is still such a reality in America today. At the Enoch Pratt Free Library, your journey starts here. Now, we want to hear about your library journey. Email your Pratt story to journey at prattlibrary.org. It may appear in the Compass Magazine and in Pratt Promotions. You're free to be more at the Pratt. In your book, you lay out, in your chapter, Healing the Black Butterfly, you really lay out a plan for this. And you lay out dollars and cents of what it would cost. And I don't know that I've ever really seen a plan that is as detailed for how you could come to racial equity in a city. What has been the reaction to that plan? And have you heard from lawmakers who would have the ability to enact a plan like that? What has been their reaction? Well, there's, well, first of all, thank you, um, When I wrote that, I wanted to show our residents and I wanted to show the lawmakers that this issue is not so big that we can't address it. So I wanted to put a concrete dollar and cent plan together that where it could help contribute to the work that the city needs to do because the city of Baltimore helped create urban apartheid in Baltimore City. So the reaction has been, I've heard from one city council person who wants to help sponsor one of the proposals in there, um, which is the racial equity social impact bond, which I price at $3 billion, and about half of it is getting rid of toxic lead, which poisons the brains of our babies, which contributes to our high level of violence, because lead, when it impacts your brain, it impacts your cognitive functioning, the executive reasoning portion of your brain. It inhibits your ability to regulate your emotions. So it has all kinds of destructive impacts. If it's hurting your brain, it's hurting your academic achievement. And if you don't achieve academically, you're going to end up in low pay, sub wage, or no pay, unemployed. You know, you're going to end up in the underclass of society. And so if we're serious about the issues we have in Baltimore, getting rid of toxic lead has to be at the very top of the list. And that's half of what the racial equity social impact bond is about. And then there's 500 million for community redevelopment. And then the rest of that is for, you know, social services is for substance abuse resources is for getting rid of biking food and transit apartheid is for dealing with and boosting anti-violence initiatives or violence interruption work. It's like safe streets. So it's a comprehensive plan. And just that one proposal, I think, is pretty comprehensive. And so I am hearing that, you know, there's a council person that wants to, you know, sponsor that. And I don't think that'll be the last thing that the city councilors or our elected officials may look at. Mm -hmm. There is going to be sort of an infusion of funding into Baltimore, into many cities, and there's infrastructure funding, funding that's coming from the American Rescue Plan. 
Are you hopeful that some of that money could be used towards some of these proposals so they could gain some traction? I don't know if I would say hopeful. I haven't heard much indication that that money will be earmarked towards healing and dismantling urban apartheid in Baltimore. And I'm sure many people are clamoring for that money. And I'm always concerned that, you know, many of our business interests in the city, uh, you know, now we have Port Covington. There's also downtown businesses. There's also the redevelopment that's going to take place at Penn Station. So there are lots of redevelopment projects, and I'm sure that they're clamoring for this money. But And those areas are in the white L. <laughs> but what the area that needs this money is the Black Butterfly. The Baltimore Business Journal did a fabulous study for one of their articles, and they showed that PPP loans to help cities recover, businesses recover from the pandemic, they were largely concentrated in the white L. So if this is COVID relief money, if this is money to help cities bounce back, the white L has already received plenty of capital (laughs) from the federal government. So this money from the federal government should be going to the Black Butterfly. It can provide a down payment for that $3 billion racial equity social impact bond that I just mentioned. So I think I would love to see it, but I haven't heard it. Mm -hmm. You're talking a little bit about the pandemic and how has that impacted communities in the Black Butterfly? And especially it continues to sort of lay bare these inequities just in our city. Well, you know, if you look statistically, Baltimore fared better than many other cities than you might expect, particularly, I think, other hyper-segregated cities. But what I just said about PPP loans actually allows us to see that the recovery effort is where the inequality is actually going to be made even larger. The PPP loans largely went into the white L. So the pandemic is, the recovery means that the white L is coming out even stronger. So that's why I argue the money that's coming from the federal government, I believe it's around $640, there should be almost exclusively allocated to the black butterfly because I think the recovery from the pandemic is really where we're, we're seeing the inequality uh, exacerbate. I want to talk about, too, the infrastructure funding that uh, the White House is trying to push nationally. We talk about transit equity. It feels like transit opportunities within the Black Butterfly are far less than what are in the White L. How do you think that infrastructure funding could potentially be used to make some big strides in Black neighborhoods? Well, it's really, you know, Johns Hopkins University and the Baltimore Transit Equity Coalition, they just in the month of, I want to say, September, put out a report, you know, documenting the transit inequity in the city. If you look at maps about transit or travel times from the Baltimore Neighborhood Indicator Alliance, you know, it shows clearly that white L communities, many are able to get to work in 15 minutes or less, many workers. But in the Black Butterfly, many people have to travel, have a travel time of more than 45 minutes. So there's huge transit apartheid in Baltimore City. So this money from the federal government then could be used, part of it, to, you know, why not have a black butterfly circulator? We have a circulator that goes through and around downtown, (laughs) and it's free. So we need a free circulator to run 
east and west along North Avenue. Maybe you run it on North Avenue, and then you have it run east-west, maybe Cold Springs Lane. And it's free. So it will facilitate transit equity back and forth across east and west Baltimore. That could be one of the allocations that I think is very specific, and it would help foster transit equity. Um, But I think, you know, there are other things. I mean, you know, I think about children who have to use the Mm -hmm. S-Pass when they're going to and from school. Um, I believe maybe a couple years ago, there might have been some philanthropy that stepped in to help cover the gap. But, you know, I would examine that and make sure that children and their parents do not have to pay especially in the black butterfly. They shouldn't have to pay for, because often maybe the transit passes for the students, maybe they start at a certain hour, end at a certain hour. So if you have an after-school program, now you may run afoul of the, the hour restriction. You know, you may have parents or grandparents or other folks that need to travel with them. And, you know, they may not be covered by the S-Pass. So this is the type of, these are the types of things that this money could be used for to help bolster transit equity. Change paths a little bit. You are involved in some trainings on historical trauma as part of the Elijah Cumming Healing Cities Act. How did you get involved with that? And what is your hope for the Healing Cities Act for Baltimore? Well, Council Member Zeke Cohen, when he was, I believe, drafting the bill and thinking about how to put it together, he convened lots of advocates across the city. You know, he asked me to come out and I did. And you know, once the bill passed and now he's working on implementing it, you know, he asked me to come out and give a talk to help set the table for the library workers in the city. So I happily accepted, you know, and I'm hoping that this this uh, legislation, which honors the late great Elijah Cummings, will actually bring attention to the fact that trauma is not just what people experience. There's also ongoing historical trauma, and this is a trauma that impacts neighborhoods, that impacts the black butterfly. And so what I'm hoping for is a more expansive definition of trauma that's not so individualized, but a definition and an understanding around the city that trauma that hurts neighborhoods. And I'm defining these racist policies, practices, systems, and budgets that we've been discussing, I'm defining those as traumatic to Black neighborhoods. And so if we can have the understanding throughout city government that, and throughout the city that that trauma of neighborhoods, it escalates trauma for individuals in those neighborhoods, then I think that's the thing that will help Baltimore really move forward. What does Baltimore as a healing city look like to you? For me, it looks like healing the neighborhoods, which then allows people in those neighborhoods. So it's healing red line neighborhoods. That's what healing for me looks like. Because if you heal red line neighborhoods, now the violence will subside. Now the school quality will go up. Now the transit equity will increase Now substance abuse will be dealt with and decreased. So I think for me, healing Baltimore City means that we heal the neighborhoods that are hurting the most, which means we're providing the support and resources for the people who are hurting in those neighborhoods. And that would create the healing city that we all want to see. Dr. Brown, I think I could talk to you for hours, but our time is up. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much. Looking for the latest titles from Oprah Winfrey or Reese Witherspoon's book clubs? Get them for free at the Pratt Library. Log on to prattlibrary.org to check out what's new in the collection. Pick up your hot title today. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.